Acts chapter 1, Jesus is continuing ministry and his work to establish the church. Chapter 1, verse 1 onwards. In my former book, Theophilus, so this is Luke writing, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So it's a period of about 10 days from the time of the ascension to the day of Pentecost. 50 days from the time of his resurrection. Right? That's how we know these things because of the timing of all of those kinds of events. So then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Think about this. This is still similar to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. They're still having certain expectations, certain ideas. They're still not completely clear. They're starting to grasp, but they're still asking these kind of questions. And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. You know, it's always, you know, even when the resurrection took place and, the, and they were, the women had come to the tomb, the angel said, why are you looking for the living? Among the dead. Same kind of thing right here. The, the, the disciples are standing there looking up at the sky. Jesus is gone and the, and the angel say, why are you standing here looking up at the sky? Go do what he has told you to do because he will come back. We don't just stand around and look. We take action in terms of what the Lord has called us to. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew. James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled, in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus. You know, remarkable prophecy about Judas. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. With the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. 
So that's just a parenthetical note about the end of Judas's life. For, said Peter, for, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there, let there be no one to dwell in it. That comes from Psalm 69, verse 25. And may another take his place of leadership. That comes from Psalm 109, verse 8. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us. Beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us, for one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So think about this. The disciples, those ten, are picking somebody who was with Jesus right from the start till the end. These twelve had been selected by Jesus, and he calls them forward. But there were others who were with Jesus throughout that period of time. And so now these ten disciples are saying, let us select one of those who had been with Jesus this whole time, who will be a witness to the resurrection. That's what Jesus is calling us to. That's what Jesus called these disciples to, to go and be witnesses. Nothing else. You don't have to have a whole lot of anything. You just have to be witnessing, testifying, telling what Jesus has done. So they nominated two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, so he was added to the 11 apostles. One more point over there, casting lots and doing different methods. You will see things in the Old Testament and in the New Testament in terms of how they did some of these things. This is not a, 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 a sort of a chance or a, we don't know what will happen with this. This is where they have come to two people who are equal in every way and they are saying, Lord, we are allowing this lot to be cast to be the way that you will just communicate to us that it's this person and not that. Right? And that's a method that they used. I'm not suggesting to you that that's the method we must always use. Or, you know, there are many things, and I'll get to this point later too. There are many things that you will read in the Bible that are not meant to be a method, right? And that's why I've mentioned this before. Jesus didn't heal with a method. He didn't touch every single person. He didn't spit on the ground and put mud on every single blind eye. He didn't speak, just speak in every sense. He used completely different methods every single time so that we will not be stuck on the method, we will say, Lord, you speak, you show, you reveal, and we're dependent on him. The book of Acts is a, is a wonderful book, lots of different stories, all sorts of things, and I was looking for some way to sort of give an introduction to the whole book, right, and to explain some things about the whole book itself as an overview of the book before we get into all the different chapters. And in doing so, I found an article on Insight for Living, which is Chuck Swindoll's ministries, Insight for Living. There's a whole article there about the history of the early church and speaks about the book of Acts in particular. And, it, and I thought it was so well written and, or stated and so simply stated as such that I'm just going to read this for you, right? Lots of reading this morning. But the, the, it, it says this, the book of Acts shows a clear progression from the gospel according to Luke, picking up just where that book left off. 
An ancient prologue to Luke's gospel indicates that Luke was first a follower of the apostles and then became close with Paul. This is exactly how the book of Acts unfolds, beginning with Peter and ending with Paul. Luke even began to speak in the first person plural in the later or latter portion of Acts as he traveled the Roman Empire alongside Paul. That's from Acts chapter 16 and verse 10. Acts ends abruptly with Paul imprisoned in Rome, waiting to bring his appeal before Caesar. It is worth noting that in this history of the early Christian church, Luke mentioned neither Paul's death, which happened between AD 64 and 68, nor the persecution of Christians that broke out under Nero in AD 64. More than likely, Luke completed the book before either of these events occurred sometime between AD 60 to 62. So not much longer or much later after Jesus has ascended, Luke is recording all these events. So there are still people living at that time who were witnesses to the resurrection, witnesses to the ascension. So they could have easily contradicted anything that Luke was recording. But he's making this orderly account. Acts is the only, uh, pardon me, so sometime between 60, uh, AD 60 and 62, while Paul was still in prison. Acts is the only biblical book that chronicles the history of the church immediately after Jesus' ascension. As such, it provides us with a valuable account of how the church was able to grow and spread out from Jerusalem into the rest of the Roman Empire. In only three decades, a small group of frightened believers in Jerusalem transformed into an empire-wide movement of people who had committed their lives to Jesus Christ, ending on a high note with Paul on the verge of taking the gospel to the highest government official in the land, the emperor of Rome. Acts can be neatly divided into two sections. The first dealing primarily with the ministry of Peter in Jerusalem and Samaria. That's Acts chapter 1 through Acts chapter 12. And the second following Paul on his missionary journeys throughout the Roman Empire. That's Acts chapter 13 going all the way to, to the end of the book, Acts chapter 28. Acts is significant for chronicling the spread of the gospel, not only geographically but also culturally. It records the transition from taking the gospel to an exclusively Jewish audience with Peter preaching to a small group in the upper room to the gospel going out among the Gentiles, primarily under the ministry of the apostle Paul. The transition is best illustrated by Peter's vision in which he heard a voice telling him, what God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. And we'll get to that in Acts chapter 10. When, when we see the vision that Peter had. This led Peter to then share the gospel with many Gentiles. The lesson for us, God wants his message of hope and salvation to extend to all people in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. That's a very, very high-level overview of the book of Acts, what we're going to go through in the next few months. This morning, I want to make three points about the book of Acts in general, and Acts 1 in particular, with most of the time spent on this first point. And the first point is this. The book of Acts 
describes the transformation of believers. So in the Gospel, in the Gospel of Luke, and in the Gospels, we were introduced to Jesus and his ministry. We learned that Jesus, in fulfillment of all the law, the prophets, the Psalms, and the Old Testament, essentially the Old Testament, what the Old Testament had prophesied about him, we read that Jesus ushered in the kingdom of God. Jesus revealed the kingdom of God so that those who believed in him would be identified as citizens of the heavenly kingdom. They would receive the power and authority of the king. They would manifest that power and authority in signs and wonders. They would be commissioned as messengers of the kingdom. They would function as stewards and not owners of the king's resources. They would invest those resources for the advancement of the kingdom. They would live according to the king's commands and eagerly await the return of the king and the final consummation of his kingdom. By the end of the gospel account, as Jesus finishes all his earthly ministry, he opens the disciples' eyes and minds so that their hearts and lives can be transformed. The book of Acts is a description of that transformation. The book of Acts is a testimony to the power of the gospel, the word of God and the Holy Spirit, to transform lives. That's what we're reading. All these stories that we read in the book of Acts, it's the testimony that God transforms lives. And the testimony of transformation in the lives of the disciples is a declaration to, of faith to each one of us that when we believe in the Lord Jesus, when we submit our lives to him, that same kind of transformation can take place in our lives. That's the power of what we're reading here. This is not just a story about somebody else. This is a story that says God's wanting to do the same for us. God's wanting to transform us in the same way. So as we go through the book of Acts, we'll see that there are at least seven areas of transformation that take place. Seven discipleship maturities and the corresponding spiritual disciplines associated with those spiritual or discipleship maturities. So we've already started to encounter some of these things, but I want to lay them out here today this morning as a way of saying this is what you can be looking for throughout the book of Acts. And these are things that I've shared before in the church to say, as a church, as New Life Fellowship Church, we want to see each one of the folks in our church maturing as a disciple of Christ in all these areas, not just one. In all these areas, we want to mature as disciples of Christ. We want to see the work of God taking place in our life and moving us forward, progressing us from level to level, increasingly, learning and trusting and moving in the Lord and applying what we're learning so that we can say, by his grace, we are maturing in all these areas. Right? So the first one is this area or this, this maturity of biblical or word of God, mature maturity in the Bible, in the word of God. Just learning and applying the word of God in all areas of our life. 
In 2 Timothy chapter 3, 15 through 17, the familiar scripture that says that the word of God, all scripture, is given. It makes us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus, but it is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So through our study of the word of God, through our instilling of the word of God, we're saying, Lord, I want to gain biblical knowledge and understanding wisdom that is sufficient to understand salvation through Christ, how to live by faith in Christ, and prepare for eternity with Christ. And then as I cultivate this Bible maturity, this maturity in the word of God, I am able to apply or to live out in orthodoxy. Orthodoxy just means correct doctrine, correct teaching, correct truth from the word of God. Right? And we are also able to live it out in orthopraxy. Praxy, praxis is the Greek word that really just means from what, where we get the word practice. And it's not just practice like practicing an instrument, it's like a doctor practices medicine, meaning they're doing what they have been trained to do. They're applying what they have acquired, the knowledge and wisdom. And so orthopraxy, this correct application, correct living as such. And then orthopathy, which is correct emotions, right thinking. What we talked about even recently, that our minds would be set on the things of God that we would have the mind of Christ. As we study the word of God, all these things are happening. We learn truth. We apply it consistently. We think right. As we think, we will be. Right? This is the, the work of the word of God in us. And so the corresponding, the spiritual discipline that we need to have in this area is that we would be regularly, in a disciplined manner, reading and studying the word of God that we will take opportunity to receive instruction in the word of God, whether it's preaching or teaching or reading or listening to whatever, you know, whatever means you have. You know, and it could be through music, it could be through prayer, whatever. But the word of God would be coming into you. And you're making opportunity for that. You're disciplined to do that regularly. And so that the word of God would dwell in us richly. The second area has to do with personal and physical maturity. And that means that we would live disciplined, diligent, self-denying holy lives, that we would make a daily commitment to crucify sinful passions and desires, and we would take care of the body as the temple of the Holy Spirit. So one of the most direct ways we do this, and I'm not going into details on, on this point, I leave it to you. I leave it to you to, to ask the Lord what you need to do in terms of physical and personal disciplines, right? But one of the most direct ways we discipline our body in a spiritual context is to fast. We fast, we abstain from food, from drink, from anything that would satisfy our appetites, and we put that aside for the purpose of worship and prayer. It is a spiritual discipline that helps us to be maturing in this area of our physical and personal uh, growth in the Lord. Third topic there, or third item, or third maturity as such, is communication. And what this means here is that there is a preparation on our part 
and a, a rehearsing, a practicing, a putting together of, uh, of the words even, of the communication methods, to articulate the gospel message to somebody else. Because the Bible is telling us that we are to be witnesses of what he has done. We don't, and you can certainly preach the gospel to yourself, you should preach the gospel to yourself, remind yourself of what the Lord has done. But the Lord is calling us to preach this word, to share this word, to communicate this word with the world around us. And so we have a responsibility to mature in learning how to do that. What's the most effective way? And if in this context that we are in, social media and all these digital tools and all these things are available to you, find out what to do. What can I do to maximize these platforms so that I can share the word of God? Some, some of you more so than others. You know? But I mean, you know, we're doing these things. We're on these, on these platforms. We're, we're engaged in these ways. Pray and say, Lord, how can I articulate the gospel message to somebody else? What should I do? How should I do that? So communication and our spiritual discipline here is to communicate regularly with the Lord himself so that we are speaking to him, but we're also listening to him so that what he says to us, we can share with others. Our communication is not coming from our own wisdom. You know, as Paul said, I don't come to you with persuasive words. I don't come to you with my wisdom. I come to you based on the Lord Jesus, on the knowledge of God. Right? And I'm speaking to you with the manifestation of the Holy Spirit's power. That's what we do when we communicate. But our spiritual discipline is to regularly spend time communicating with God. That you would take time alone with God. And you would speak to him and that he, you would listen to him. So, communication. Fourth area is that of financial maturity. And that means that we would be consistently in a stewardship-based income generation and management of finances so that we can give generously, first to the local church and then to others. We can save for the future. We delay instant gratification. We plan and prepare for the future. We save for the future. And we invest wisely as led by the Holy Spirit to manage risks and rewards. So there's a responsibility as the stewards of God's resources to say, what is the area of financial maturity? How does it look in my life? What should I do? How do I let this happen? And again, throughout this book of Acts, I'll tell you, look for these examples. Look and see how the disciples or how the people handled money. What did they do? How did they think about it? How did they, how did they speak about it? Right? Look at the Pauline episodes when he talks about things, about money, about these topics. Let these topics be coming alive in us so that we're maturing in how we handle it. Okay, fifth area, character and ethical maturity. And this has to do with integrity, with responsibility, with the ability to make responsible decisions, acting ethically, showing mercy, loving justice, willing to demonstrate courage under fire. And the spiritual discipline there is that we would be consistently honoring the Lord in all the circumstances, in all our lives, in all our circumstances, even when speaking the truth or loving unconditionally causes us harm according to the terms of the world, not according to God. 
right? But in terms of the world, we do something, speak the truth in love, we try to reach out in, you know, in, in, with love, unconditional love, and oh man, it just comes back with some sort of attack. In, even in the middle of that, will we have the character and ethical maturity to stand, to stand under fire? So, character and ethical maturity. Sixth area has to do with relational and social maturity. That we would be able to establish and build God-glorifying relationships in your own family, outside the family, wherever it may be, that we would build relationships, we would interact socially in such a way that it is God-glorifying. And that with all people, we will deal with them with understanding and respect. We would love them as the Lord loves them. We would be ready to spiritually parent others, to pray for, to win, and to nurture people, to build them up for their benefit, for their sake, that they we would seek their well-being. That should be the nature of our relationships, that we would say, Lord, I am speaking words that are full of grace, not for my sake, but for the other person's sake. It is compassion and love expressed in sacrificial service. That's the relational and social maturity that we need to have. And then we need to be people of God, children of God, who seek to mature in call of leadership. And you know, you may say, well, I'm not a leader. No, you are. Every believer is a leader. There's something that the Lord is calling you to do. And in that particular purpose that you have to fulfill for your life uniquely, you need to lead that. Now, you may lead other people as you do that, or you may not, but there's still a leadership responsibility. There's some service that you need to be stepping into. There's something that you have to look to to say, Lord, how can I be willing to serve and be ready to lead in an appropriate role in the church and in society as a whole? How do I do that? How should I prepare? What is the maturity that I need to have? Help me, Lord. Build me up. It is recognizing that God has called and gifted each one of us to lead and to follow. And that in the various responsibilities and roles that God gives us during various seasons and during various opportunities, he calls us to lead and to submit. These come together. So we, this area that I'm speaking about is where we learn to do both. We learn how to submit. We learn how to follow, but we also are learning how to lead in that, right? Now, all of these discipleship maturities, as I list them off like this and I talk about them like this, this is not so that we could judge or condemn ourselves or others because we look at the list and we say, oh, I don't think I measure up, right? So when we think we don't, we don't measure up, we judge or condemn. And these, this list is not so that we would boast about ourselves or others when we look at it and we say, oh, I do measure up. I'm really good at all of these things, right? You know, it, that, that's not the point. This is not so that we would, we would condemn ourselves or that we would boast about ourselves. No, rather, it is just a framework. It is just an, a, a, a list there that helps us, that guides us, that we would say, am I maturing in all these areas? Am I neglecting one for the sake of the other? Am I not being disciplined? So I, I'm doing certain things, but I'm not being disciplined about certain other things. 
It just helps us to look at all of that in a holistic manner. All of our lives, all of our, the ways in which we express it. So we go through an honest self-assessment, an internal look, and we also look externally and we receive input from people and we say, hey, you know what, I, I, I could have some blind spots here or I could have pride, I could have all sorts of ignorance. Tell me, tell me, am I doing okay? How do you think I'm doing with this particular area? And you may be pleasantly surprised about the feedback you get, or you may, you know, may not be pleasantly surprised. You just may be surprised. But in any case, just receive it. Receive it, right? We, we've not, we need to do that. We need to say, how am I doing in this? How am I doing? Peter said, you need to evaluate. Make, make your calling and election sure. Examine. Look at what you're doing. And when we look at these areas and we look at these things, we may say, oh, you know what, I'm just starting out. I just barely know about this. That's fine. Or you may say, you know what, I'm maturing. I'm, I'm starting to make some progress. Right? I'm starting to see some, some impact from this as I'm applying this. Great. Or you may say, you know what, I, I, I've learned in this area. I, I'm, I'm considerably mature, and that is helping me to mentor somebody else or it's helping me to teach, or it's helping me to lead. Wonderful. But as you do that assessment, as you get the feedback, as you look at where you are, that helps us as a body of Christ to come together in all these different ways so that what I am weak in, you can help me with, and what you are weak in, I can help you with. And we're able to support one another. We're able to live that way so that as individual believers are being transformed into the likeness of Christ, the very important consequence of this transformation is that Jesus forms us together into a community, into a family, into his body, into the church. So the book of Acts describes the formation of the church, the body of Christ. All through this book, you'll see this. Throughout this book, we'll see how the church operates, how it grows, what are the characteristics of the body. And then today, based on Acts 1, and including what is anticipated in Acts 1 and then fulfilled in Acts 2, I want to draw your attention to three specific things that happened with this group of 120 believers in Jerusalem. The church is just starting to take form. Three things that happened. Verse 14. They all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. They were a people of prayer. Number two, verse 26. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias so that he was added to the 11 apostles. Their leadership was defined, and they took deliberate action to make sure that people were where that each person was where they were supposed to be. They were looking to make sure that people fit correctly, right? And then thirdly, they received the power and filling of the Holy Spirit. In verse eight we read, where Jesus himself says to them, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. When the Holy Spirit came upon this once fearful, but now emboldened band of 120 people, they collectively manifested the glory of God. And Peter gets up, I mean, he's, he's transformed, right? He's changed. 
And he gets up and he explains what is happening. This is not, you know, we're not drunk. Let me just tell you what's going on. He explains what's happening. He references the scriptures. He talks about the scriptures being fulfilled. He declares Jesus to be Lord and Messiah. And he tells the people what they must do to be saved. And in Acts chapter 2, verses 41 and 42, it says that those who accepted his, Peter's message, were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Again, in the coming weeks, we'll look at specific examples and we'll go into a lot more detail about the formation of the church. However, today, especially on the 31st anniversary of our local church, when we remember what we are about, when we reaffirm our mission to love God, love people, and make disciples, it is very appropriate for us to learn from Acts chapter 1 and commit to these three specific areas for our church. One, we want to be a people of prayer. We want to be a people of prayer. Two, we want everyone to be rightly positioned in the body of Christ. And three, we want to receive the Holy Spirit. You see, the book of Acts, in all of these ways, are describing the transformation of believers describing the formation of the church, the book of Acts is also describing the continuing ministry of Jesus. You know, in that very first verse that we read in Acts chapter 1, Luke says, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. In this account, Theophilus, I'm telling you all the things that Jesus is continuing to do and teach. He's not in the earth anymore, but he's still at work. You see, it was, uh, it was in the second century AD that this book came to be referred to as the Acts of the Apostles. In fact, in some of your Bibles, the title says Acts of the Apostles. But you know, it would be quite appropriate for us to refer to this book as the Acts of Jesus and the Holy Spirit, because that's what it is. It's not just about what happened with the apostles. It's about Jesus continuing to work. It's about Jesus continuing to minister. It's about Jesus and the Holy Spirit working through the apostles. And if that was what was happening then, if Jesus is continuing his ministry through them and said, this will continue until I return, guess what? Jesus is continuing his ministry through us. It wasn't just the disciples, the apostles, all that time, 2,000 years ago. No, no, no. Jesus' continuing ministry is through us today. We can exercise faith to do what is described in the book of Acts. Not everything in the book of Acts is normative, meaning that we must do it. But everything in the book of Acts is formative. It shows us what we are to become. It forms us. The word of God informs, but much more importantly, it forms. It is formative. And it forms us into his image. 
And so when we look at that and we say, oh Lord, as we go through this book, we don't want to read it just as something that was true for somebody else some other time. In a, in a time long, long ago, in a place far, far away, right? That's how a lot of movies begin even. But no, 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 it's not just fiction. No, no, we want to stand here and we want to say, Lord, we trust that the Lord who is continuing to build the church, the one who is continuing to advance his kingdom, and the Holy Spirit that continues to be poured out and to work in believers, we're looking for the Lord to continue his ministry in us. So how do we respond? We respond this morning by submitting to the Lord to continue his work in us. We say, oh Lord, come. Come, Holy Spirit. Come and fill me too. Come and do what you did in the book of Acts. Come and do what you did with these disciples and apostles. And you continue to work in me. I yield to you. I surrender. I give you my life. I give you my dreams. I give you my future. I give you all my thoughts that are in my mind that may have come from all sorts of places. But I give it all to you because you, Lord, are continuing your work. You didn't just leave. It wasn't that you just spoke to the disciples and you said, I'm here with you for these few days, 40 days after my ascension, or pardon me, after my resurrection, and now I'm ascending to heaven. That's why the disciples, when they're standing there, that's why the angels said, why are you standing here looking up? He's still with you. He is continuing to work and he is continuing to build his church. So when we respond to the Lord by saying, Lord, I submit to you, we apply we apply by being filled with and obeying the Holy Spirit. We say, Lord God, the only way that I can apply this word, the only way that this is going to have root in me, the only way that this is going to transform me, the only way that the book of Acts will be the book of new life. New life, the Acts of New Life Fellowship Church. Right? How do we write that? It's only as we receive the Holy Spirit as we obey the Holy Spirit, as we stay in step with the Holy Spirit, as we worship him in spirit and in truth, as we say, Lord God, you do with me what you want. I'm yours. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Oh, Lord God, how powerful your word is. How wonderful it is to us. And Lord, we are looking forward to going through the rest of this book, book of Acts, to say, Lord Jesus, transform us. We who believe, we who acknowledge you, transform us. And Lord, we, as we come together in you, as we are formed together into a body, into a church, oh Lord God, Lord, help us. Grant us grace to see each other with your eyes and to look to build each other up in the body. Members of one body functioning in the specific call that you have made in our lives, in the specific place that you have put us in, so that as a body collectively and together, we can do what you have called us to do, because Lord, you are continuing to work in us. You are continuing to minister in the church. Oh Lord God, you're not just far away. You're not just, Lord, at the right hand of the Father, looking down. No, no, you are actively working in us today. And so, Lord, even today, even on this anniversary Sunday of our church, Lord God, we are asking you to come and to freshly, freshly renew us, 
Freshly charge us, Lord, with this vision and this mission, Lord, to be a church that is where the power of God is manifest, where the Holy Spirit has complete control. Oh, Lord God, we yield to you. We submit to you. Thank you, Jesus. Oh, we ask this and we pray this in faith. In Jesus' name, amen.